Hello, everybody, and welcome back to season four of Sequelizers, the show that is always about fixing the bad sequels that follow good movies. As always, I am your host, Jack Chambers, and joining me, my three sequelizing compadres, Mr. Matthew Stogden. Hello. Timothy Matum. I make this look good. And Alexander Plowman. I feel my noisy cricket getting wicked on you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's... Uh, <laughs> I'm out. So no, much I'm good. when you slow it down. That, yeah. Thanks for listening, everyone. I'm, I'm done. I'm, uh, can I tap yeah. out now? That, that, that's just unpleasant. And speaking of unpleasantness, if you haven't already guessed, we're fixing Men in Black 2. Because it needs it. Good Lord, does it need it. Mm. <laughs> it's a weird franchise, isn't it? Because first one, and we can all agree, pretty good. Oh, yeah. I like, I like a, very, a very fine film. I, I like, yeah, I like okay. Men in Black. Yeah, it's good. The rest of them, though, not so much. No. It's a weird thing of like, two is, I, I believe... Have anybody has anybody else seen International apart from the Stogs over there? Uh, not yet, no. No. Do, do you intend on seeing it? Because I don't. <laughs> I, might, I might eventually watch it in the same way that I watched Men in Black Three, which is on a long haul flight. Uh, yeah, the, uh, correct. Once I've correct exhausted answer. the various movies that I wanted to see. Shit, I've seen that. I've seen that. I've seen. I guess I'll do Men in Black. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I think I did the same thing for Three. Actually, mm. it strikes me as a. Uh, oh, this came up on Netflix a few weeks ago, and now I have a hangover. <laughs> um, yeah, Men in Black International, same as two and three. Not good. Um, in a weird way, two is the worst because it fell so far from grace. International is also the worst because it's also boring. And I was, it was just very dull. It's a frustrating thing, isn't it? Mm. Because Men in Black is... I think a very good film. The first Men in Black film, I think that's a great... Yeah, I mm. like it a lot. It was a really great um, movie, like like late 90s movie. It's kind of a, you know, a big moment in late 90s cinema. Yeah, it's 1997 it's, as you original. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And it was just... I remember the the disappointment of that second film. Oh, God, yeah. Well, it's interesting because... Um, this has been a comparison that's been made online uh, more so recently, but it's been... Uh, stated that Men in Black is the 1990s equivalent of Ghostbusters. Yeah. Um, I the same so. level Agreed. of sci-fi. And the thing is, comedic stuff because the people are funny, not necessarily because there's lots of comedy, which is what all the um, sequels have misinterpreted and made them into straight comedy films that are not funny. Yeah. We talked about this when we did the Ghostbusters episode. Did, we, yeah. we all suddenly realised we're in agreement of like, most of us don't particularly care about Ghostbusters. This is really weird. And it's kind of a... I think it's so revered in pop culture and with the kind of 80s nostalgia vibe that's been happening recently. Mm. And like you said, with Men in Black kind of being the 90s equivalent, there's a lot of nostalgia around these kind of comedy sci-fi kind of things and things like Guardians of the Galaxy, yeah. that kind of combining an ensemble cast of funny people and blah, 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 blah. But yeah, this franchise just really shit the bed very quickly. Like Men in Black, the original Men in Black feels very much that it had that kind of bottled lightning appeal. Mm. Like, it caught the stars at exactly the right time. It caught the culture at the right time. Like, there was so much interest in, like, UFOs and stuff like that in the late 90s. You obviously have X-Files going on and various other things. Um, and it it was just the perf... It was that real kind of perfect film at the perfect time. It worked 
really well. It had that kind of, we've mentioned this several times, that kind of Jurassic Park approach where, yes, there is CGI in it, but they mix it with a lot of practical effects. It had, I think... Um, Rick Baker. Rick Baker. Um, I wanted to call him Rich Baker, and I was like, no, Rich that's wrong. Rich Baker. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, it had Rick Baker doing um, a lot of the alien uh, makeup and stuff like that, and it, it just kind of perfectly nailed the tone very similar like you say to ghostbusters of that kind of it's funny because the people are funny but a lot of the situations are not they're not like comedy set up for the most part obviously you do have like oh let's get will smith to deliver an alien baby and stuff like that but but it for the most part it's quite a straight sci-fi action film that just happens to be very funny Mm -hmm. and i think it's very much driven by the chemistry between J and K, Tommy Lee Jones mm. and Will yes, Smith. Yes, and weirdly enough, I think that's one of the few things that actually carries forward and works in the second film is that those two are still really quite good, mm. but they've got not much to work with. No. And the fact that, you know, K is not in a bunch of the movie because he's been neuralized and then comes back and mm. blah, blah, blah. And you have him as the, the postal guy, Kevin, and that whole thing. Tommy Lee Jones does what he can with what he's got, but mm. fuck me. Yeah, that they just really kind of don't understand and it's, i know we've, we've already referenced it a bunch of times is what happened with ghostbusters they misinterpreted like oh yeah they like all the funny stuff let's yeah, give them yeah. more crazy effects and just fill it with effects and jokes and that's what works that's what the kids like right like no you know what the kids mm. like those fucking worm guys exactly mm. and the yeah. talking dog let's make him basically k's partner for yeah. the, or sorry jay's partner for the first third of the film yeah exactly it's interesting when you look at Men in Black 2 because you really get the sense that Men in Black was a hit. And I think I think people expected Men in Black to do reasonably well, but I don't know if mm. people expected it to be the kind of hit that it was. And then you essentially had people going, well, we've got to make another one, but then scratching their heads about how to do that. Mm. Because Men in Black sort of sets itself up for a sequel, but then sort of doesn't at the end of the first film. So at the end of the first film, you retire Tommy Lee Jones uh, and then you have Linda Fiorentino mm-hmm. uh, come in as the new partner. Mm-hmm. And that kind of is where the next movie <laughs> should lead off from. Only you have this thing where it's like people really love Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith. Yeah. So we've got to bring Tommy Lee Jones back, right? Mm. And it's like, okay, but Tommy Lee Jones is now a completely different person. How do we how do we do that? And it's like, well, what about if one third of the way into the film we deneuralize him? Mm. And that way we can just reset him to the <laughs> same and character fuck it, we just bring him that back. he was yeah. at the beginning mm. of. And there's a lot of I think that the reset mindset, which mm. we've seen as a problem in other sequels. This is the problem in Jaws 2, where it's like, how do we deal with this shark returning to Amity Island. It's like, well, obviously we have to make it so that all of the people on Amity Island have seemingly forgotten about the first (laughs) shark attack (laughs) and taken no precautions to deal with that. It's kind of the same thing here in a different way is what do we do about, you know, the Will Smith, Tommy Lee Jones thing? Well, what if we just have Tommy Lee Jones forget that he forgot that he was Tommy (laughs) Lee Jones? (laughs) (laughs) And then we can just carry on as normal from the point that we're Mm. at at the beginning of the film. And that's a real bugbear of mine when it comes to sequels. The undoing of the development of the first film so that you can end up retreading the beats of the first film Mm. 
is one of the cardinal sequel sins and they commit it mm. here in a really rubbish way, I think. Mm. The the ending of the original Men in Black is weirdly similar to the end of The Matrix, yes. where you kind of you set up a new status quo for the characters, but it's one that you can't really follow on in a subsequent story because you've so dramatically, like the place they end up is so dramatically different. Like you say, we've sent off Tommy Lee Jones to who now has no memory of his time with the Men in Black, and he's off living in you know Massachusetts with his girlfriend that woman that he was cyber stalking (laughs) for the past 30 years or whatever and you have a new generation of the men in black and stuff like that and and it kind of it like you say it leads towards a certain type of sequel and yeah they just completely override it well i think part of the issue here you've got to think about this in the context of when this film was made i think that we were making films here at a time when a sequel wasn't a given Mm. and when Hollywood studios didn't assume that they were going to be setting up a franchise. So Men in Black, part of the reason I think it is such a good film is because it is very contained. It doesn't turn around and go, we want to leave this door open here and that window open there so that in the event that we are going to come back to this, we can do another one. That's a problem with 90% of films right now, isn't it? Yeah. Everything is trying to be in the next Marvel, the next Star Wars, the next yeah. huge franchise. It's like, oh, can't just be one isolated thing. Let's expand it into this huge billion dollar franchise that nothing ever actually is whereas men in black was just this one really neat contained narrative that Mm. worked in the context of this standalone movie Mm. and then all of a sudden they have to work a way of doing a second one and interestingly this is something that the the, about the deneuralizing thing i'm pretty sure it came from the cartoon series there was an episode where they introduced the deneuralizer as as a concept because the cartoon series happens between the first film and the second film. Right. And then the, the four-year gap there. Yeah. And then the fifth year. So in 2002, Men in Black 2 comes mm. out. But in the 97 to 2001, there's the TV series. And much like Ghostbusters, it's one of, it's one of the best iterations that isn't the original kind of thing. It's it's It does its own thing. It's not literally just aping Will Smith and Tommy Jones, but it is in a manner of homaging them quite nicely. Yeah, there's too many of those goddamn worm things, but that's that's neither there. <laughs> um, I remember but, it having an awesome opening title sequence as well. Yeah, like up there with Batman Beyond as um, as as good opening titles go, I, and very late nineties opening title sequence. Yes. Oh, as definitely, well, where absolutely. It's really kind of strovy and like street and yeah. <laughs> but that's the thing, isn't it? The whole the whole Men in Black late nineties thing was relatively unique with their enormous chrome guns and stuff it's interesting because we talk about ghostbusters obviously inspiring a lot of cultural football and people have a lot of fondness for men in black but no one else decided right what's the way forward now enormous silver guns and tiny little something <laughs> mm. it became well the matrix and realistic guns and guns lots of guns mm. sort of situation and just what we see in the call of duty mindset sort mm. of well you know everyone starts being able to name on um, off certain calibers and models and such but not the big fantasy cartoon-esque silly over the top this is clearly a thing to shoot bad guys with. It has that very specific, like late nineties, early two thousands, like vision of what the future looks like, with like the big round screen that they're all looking at, and like you say, the kind of chromey weapons that it looks. It it's a very kind of like MTV vision of the future. Yes. If yes. That, like <laughs> if that makes sense. Um, I have a, a a very particular relationship with Men in Black too, um, because I. It, to me, it is almost the thing that brought my critical faculties online in my memory. Um, like, you know, if you ask most people who knew me now, and obviously I'm on this podcast, I must do, 
I think a lot about films and TV and music and all that kind of stuff. But mm. when I was growing up, that was not the case. Like my family weren't big film people or music people. So I kind of just absorbed what my friends were into and didn't really think about stuff that much. And like that, like 2002, which is when I would have been 16. And obviously it's a lot of a time when you're kind of given to start thinking like, oh, maybe I should like think about the media that I'm consuming and stuff like that. And I remember like Men in Black 2 is the first film I can remember walking out of and being like, that was a bad film and I didn't like it. <laughs> Whereas like previously, like I'd gone to see, you know, you go back three years and I'd gone to see um, Phantom Menace. And I was just like, yes, that was a film and a lot of things happened and I didn't get bored. So I guess it was a good film. Mm. Um, and in 2002, you have Men in Black 2 and you have Attack of the Clones. Mm -hmm. And I think both of those serve to somehow like switch on my brain and go like, no, 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 no. Like, don't just watch everything. <laughs> uh, and then and, and then I look at like the films that came out that year and I realize, oh, yeah. OK, so later that year, I'm like watching um Donnie Darko, which came out in October 2002 wow. in the UK and uh, Road to Perdition. And it is like suddenly just something has got switched on at the back of my brain and gone, you're ready to actually think about the media that you're consuming mm. and um, and maybe aim a little bit higher than just, well, a lot of things happened <laughs> and I ate the popcorn. <laughs> so the uh, Spider-Man came out as well. So it's like, you know, yeah, another yeah. big like, oh, this is the shift from um again the 90s blockbuster the 90s style action film to superheroes are starting to be a mm. thing again very very slowly but shifting there mm. nonetheless so i have a, a sort of a similar men in black 2 uh story i don't think that it was the first film for me where i went hey this is like objectively these are like, i think i'd had a couple of films before that but so i remember and this is right of course by the time it comes out on DVD, this is right around the time of the DVD boom. Mm. So I didn't see it in the cinema, but I remember, so it must have been about 2001 that we got our first DVD player. And then in 2000 and, what would have been 2002, uh, my, the IT guy at my dad's work gave him a region unlock code for our DVD player. Mm. Of course he did. <laughs> and he had been importing DVDs from America and he had Men in Black 2. Mm. Um, well before it came out on DVD in the UK, mm. back when that was a thing where films would come out a lot earlier in yeah. America. Yes, yes. So I can remember he lent us that and didn't want it and was like, well, you know, you can watch it and if you like it, then you can buy it off of me. <laughs> I remember being really excited that we were going to watch Men in Black 2 and potentially buy Men in Black 2 on DVD. And not just any <laughs> DVD, but one of those weird American DVDs without the little triangle Ooh. with the age rating on yeah. it. Um, with, a, with an FBI warning at yeah, the front. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the BBFC. You can't get me, FBI. Yeah. You have no jurisdiction here. That's sweet, sweet region one. And I was there like, oh, yeah, great. And then at the end of the film, we just looked at each other and we were like, nah, that's not worth the seven quid he wants for it. <laughs> <laughs> it was that moment of crushing disappointment of like this, no, this this wasn't good. No. Yeah. I think that's the thing. Like I, I, I'm sure I had seen films before that and been like, oh, this wasn't a good film. But it, it was such a disappointment after the first one being so... Uh, and I can remember like kids in my school like learning the dance to men in black and stuff yeah. like that and it and it and it felt like a real cultural touchstone for can, of, uh, people of our age i can remember being taught 
the dance in high school. <laughs> we had dance classes. And, uh, <laughs> I thought you meant by your mates in the playground. No, 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 no. fucking like dance, in dance class. Dance class. Our what? PE teacher, who also did dance class, was, was like, it a weirdly sexy alien, just like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, our extraterrestrial <laughs> PE teacher thought it would be a good idea to. <laughs> Is it called ETPE? I can't. But yeah, I can remember being taught the dance in mm. dance class. That and Vogue by Madonna. It's <laughs> <laughs> all the dancing you need. Yeah. It's interesting because when Men in Black 1 came out, I was 13 and I saw it in the cinema. Loved it. 13 was good. I should watch it. Men in Black 2 comes out, I'm 18. I don't give a fuck anymore. <laughs> um, I didn't even see it in the cinema. I saw it on... There was a time when you didn't see things in cinemas, Matthew? I don't know. Really? I was busy. Uh-huh. Um, I saw it on DVD afterwards and thought, oh yeah, I was glad I didn't see this. This is shit. And it wasn't that it was, you know, not good enough. It's just like, no, this is really, really bad. This is a squandered opportunity. Um, But it's also a really, really weird film. There's so many like things about the making of the film that are so incredibly strange. So, I mean, obviously we'll get more into this stuff a bit later, but some of the things that stuck out to me are the rumoured things I find quite interesting. Mm -hmm. Mostly around the uh, the villainess, the villain of the role, the antagonist, um, played by uh, Lara Flynn Boyle. But originally, Famke Janssen, mm. except she uh, had to leave because of the death of a family member, I think it was. They actually shot some material with her, but a family member died. She just couldn't carry on. Understandable, obviously. And she exits the film. Now, Lara Flynn Boyle coming in, apparently is because she was going out with Jack Nicholson at the yeah. time <laughs> and he was going to go on anger management, but it said, yeah, well, I want a job for my girlfriend. Now, again, it's one of those things that that's kind of how Hollywood tends to work. Fuck Someone leans on, Fuck Hollywood. on some bullshit, but it's just like, okay, so we have this character I mean, and coming off the back of like Vincent D'Onofrio being so goddamn good mm-hmm. as Edgar in, in the first Men in Black, you have this very dismissible villain played by somebody who hasn't got a lot to do. It just ends up sort of, ordering people from a distance there was a an article that came out recently about a month ago uh, as we're recording this on vulture that was a an oral history of the sugar water scene from the first men in black <laughs> where they they like tracked down vincent d'onofrio and talked about it and and he talked about how um apparently barry sonnenfeld has no real interest in actors which is a weird thing for a director that, to say. Well, what does a, that even mean? He is a director of photography who became a director, yeah. which if you know any DPs, that kind of makes sense. They're so like what, more about chasing the light than like anything else. George Lucas style, you mean? Yes, yeah. Like yeah. He, he has no real interest in like crafting a performance that an actor gives. And so when, when D'Onofrio was going for the role, like someone, <laughs> someone is it like agent or something, basically said like, I know you're going to want to talk to the director about your performance don't like he is not going to be interested that may result in you not even getting the role if you start talking to him about performance and so d'onofrio was like fair enough and just went away and crafted this performance and like worked with rick baker on the makeup and like creating this very very physical performance Mm. and then showed up on the first day did the filming and barry sonnenfeld was like so that's how you're going to play it and he's like yeah that's how i'm going to play it Okay, uh, <laughs> and, Which, you, and you end up with one of these like iconic, yeah, 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 like yeah. comedy horror performances, yeah. and then you come to this <laughs> film, and like the role of Selena is not like it's that thing of uh, it, it's a little bit like uh, the Johnny Depp as Jack Sparrow thing. You go back to the first film, and if you probably read all the lines that Edgar has, they're probably not actually that interesting or funny, mm, but the performance mm. makes it so. And I think Selena is probably written 
almost very similar way of just like mm-hmm. kind of a villain, nothing very interesting about her. And then Laura Flynn Boyle brings absolutely nothing to the mm, performance yeah. as well. It's like, she's not got a lot to work with, but like, I don't think D'Onofrio probably did either. Um, and, uh, but he knocked it out of the park and then you come to this film and you're like, Oh, okay. But that also explains the fact that in between these films, Sonnefeld directed Wild Wild West. And you think, oh, Whew. yeah, that's where it went wrong. Yep. <laughs> you went from Adam's Family, amazing, yeah, and its yeah. sequel, amazing. Yeah. Men in Black, you're off on a roll. Wild Wild West, and then everything else. Yeah. <laughs> Did he, didn't he do a film with Kevin Spacey as a talking cat? Is that him? I'm nine sure it's, nine uh, Lives? Like one I'm of Kevin Spacey's sure last films? I'm a double check films. I know Sonnenfeld is like really, yeah, like he had that s- really hot stretch in the mid 90s and then. Barry Wolf. Sonnenfeld's Nine Lives, starring Kevin Spacey. Wow. As a talking cat. Oh, God. <laughs> I miss it. But then, having said that, I will say this much Sonnenfeld uh, worked very closely and heavily with the um, Lemony Snicket stuff on Netflix, and that's really good. So oh, really? maybe he's back to being good again, rather than being. Let's hope so. Whatever he was <laughs> at that time. <laughs> so I hinted at the uh, ups and downs of the franchise earlier. So why don't we get into some Rotten Tomato score guessing, gentlemen, for all four? Oh shit! Shall we um, divide this between ourselves again? Oh, so what okay. I'm, yeah. I'm what I'm going to suggest that we do is that each of us will do a Men in Black film that's not Men in Black Two, and then we will each of us suggest one for Men in Black Two. Alec, I like the way you think, Gosh. sir. I like the cut of your jib, sir. Nope, didn't say that. Take that back. Okay, sorry. <laughs> I like your noisy cricket, Alec. I, I like my noisy cricket. <laughs> Let me see you get wicked with it. Well, maybe later. It depends. Yeah, sequelizes after that. Uh, there we go. <laughs> so, Matt, I'm going to give you Men in Black 1. Oh, shit. Uh, it was successful. It came off the back of like Will Smith and Independence Day 7, so I loved the crap out of him and him in Bad Boy, so he was a big star, a bit high up his powers. I don't uh, think I've ever heard you speak quicker than you did just but then. But <laughs> really? <laughs> I can do faster. That was me being still quite refrained. Okay, I'm going to say... I'm going to say it's quite high, but not as high as it deserves to be. Let's say 77. It's higher than that, my friend. Well, fuck you. <laughs> I, I'm going to go like eight. I, I know it's not my turn. You just <laughs> I'm gonna, I want to no, guess. I'm competitive. I, I want to guess because I agree that Stogden lowballed that. Um, I get a critics at the time. That's all I can think of. Yeah, I, I'm going to go like 85. Tim, do you want to get on this and fuck the new <laughs> system? <laughs> fuck the police. Fuck the man. <laughs> uh. um, I'm, I'm going to be a coward and go in the middle and say like 81. 92. Oh, wow. The first match. Actually, okay. that's fair. That's actually a fair yeah, that's score. A, yeah, that's a good assessment mm. for that very, very good film. Yeah. Mm. Men in Black 3. I'm glad next. you asked me. Plow, <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you take this one. Uh, Men in Black 3. I like. I think that probably did better than 2. It is a better film. Um, I would uh, agree that it is a better I'm film. I'm going to go yeah. like yeah. around, I don't know, 67. Do you guys want to get on in this? Are we no, I respect the, the rules. Okay. No, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd say about there, yeah, 60. Yeah. Matt Stockton, you respect the rules, and that is why you will never be a champion <laughs> of industry. <laughs> Thank you, JP Morgan. <laughs> <laughs> Judge Tread. <laughs> um, you are 1% away. Oh, about 68% for okay. Men in Black 3. I also think that's fair. Yeah. That, that's yeah. right for that film. Brolin was good. Brolin is surprisingly good in that film. Like, yeah. Mm. yeah, yeah. 
Not that he's not good, but you know what I mean. Like he's doing an impression. Yeah, the day. he exactly. doesn't get to do very much. Yeah. yeah, Bill Bill Hader as undercover Andy Warhol is <laughs> yeah. quite yeah, quite good. good in that film. It's certainly the strongest sequel that they have made to the original. Well, there's a clue for you, Tim, as you guess at Men in Black International from earlier this year, year of our Lord, 2019. I mean, we we are in a little bit of of blockbuster fatigue i'm sure mm. as far as critics go i'm gonna go quite low i'm gonna say f- 54 <laughs> <Stop>. yeah <laughs> the I only would. man in the room who's seen the film goes mm, with his yeah, face I'm, I would. I'm, uh, I'm not involved myself because i respect the rules but also tim tim no <laughs> i'm gonna let you finish but um <laughs> well, men in black and yeah. was the worst men in black of all time yeah i think beyonce had the best men in black of all time yeah. <laughs> You, way low. Yeah, you're way too fucking oh, really? high. Yeah, yeah. 22 Ooh, of Men in Black International. Holy crap. Now, the real question is, is Men in Black 2 or Men in Black International the lowest scoring of the four? I'm calling it. I think Men in, Men in Black International is the lowest. Yeah, okay. I'm, I'm also going to go with MIBI. Maybe! <laughs> Sounds like it's a car insurance yeah. company. Or something, <laughs> yeah. So, Men in Black 2, gentlemen. What, what's the scores? What do you reckon? 47. 47. Bold straight in there from Matthew's talking. Yep. Tim? 37. 37. Alec Plowman? 41. It's 107. <laughs> if I could like just do it right down the middle of Tim and Alec at 39%. <laughs> to run the gamut of the four, we go 92, 39, 68, and 22%. That kind of fits. Yeah, they all kind of makes so it. From what I've seen, like I said, I haven't seen International. I have no intention of seeing International. Mm. The other three, that kind of links up, syncs mm. up with what I think. Um, in terms of box office, Men Black 2 did pretty well, but didn't like blow the doors off or anything. Mm. The first one had a budget of 90 million and a box office of nearly 600, so it's 589. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then a slightly higher budget of 140 million for Men in Black 2. And a slightly lower box office of four hundred forty-eight million. So, yeah, not as a, a huge I mean, success the first one. You've also got to look at where blockbuster cinema is at this point because Men in Black Two goes up against a whole load of stuff mm. in that year. We were just mentioning Spider-Man and all Two kind of Towers. Of oh um, shit! Yeah, Attack yeah. of the Clones. Mm-hmm. It, Matrix Reload is the year after, isn't it? So it's not that. Mm-hmm. But, I think but there's so, yeah. yeah, there's like a bunch of stuff happening yeah. in the world of. Pirates is Pirates that year? No, 2003. But, but all of that stuff is really kicking off anyway. And also yeah. you have to remember that they had to do a few reshoots for Men in Black 2 because of the World Trade Center. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they had to mm. basically scrap the entire finale and, and mm. change it quite significantly. So we've learned how terrible some of these Men in Black... Most, In fact, most of these Men in Black movies are. Mm. Half, of, half, okay. of, half of them at least bad. One of them's good. Third one's okay. So let's get around to actually fixing the second one, shall we, gentlemen? I think it's about time we do. Mm. Mrs. Dogden, why don't you kick us off, please? Okay, let's uh, have a little discussion. Um, no. No. <laughs> Next. That's not the idea you. of this podcast. <laughs> I was talking to the audience who can't talk back. That's the best kind of discussion where I get to talk at them. <laughs> um, so basically, we have to cover a few things, mostly the nature of retconning. So the idea is that, as we mentioned earlier, one of the cardinal sins of sequels is the story not being pushed forward, but giving you the exact same thing regurgitated again. To the status quo. Exactly. Everybody's comfortable with it. It's fine. So effectively speaking, one of the biggest fixes is don't do that. Um, To do something new that pushes the story forward that 
goes to the next logical step that evolves both the universe, the characters, etc., 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 and that's what we would like to do. However, we have to address a big issue. So earlier we mentioned how Linda Fiorentino is very good in these films, uh, or in this film, sorry, in Men in Black 1. We really enjoyed her performance, and, and she's then later in Dogma, and everyone's like, oh yeah, this sort of husky-voiced, interesting, confident, female character sort of actor something sort of yeah she's 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 good she should be doing lots of things and then she just fucking disappears politically speaking we're going to be very guarded about what we say because the truth is we don't fucking know we have no idea but the truth is that a lot of people come out and said that she was a very difficult person to work with um one of the conditions of tommy lee jones come back from men in black 2 is that she wouldn't be anywhere near this film. <laughs> and you're like, that's such a strange that's request. A, that's a bold, like, yeah. that's yeah. a very definitive black and white kind yeah. of, yeah. Especially considering most of the scenes with her are with Will Smith. Yeah, mm. that's yeah, that's even weirder. Yeah, so, good point. It's it's really good. So we're I talking mean, about not retconning, but then you have to. I mean, again, the, the film ends. We mentioned earlier with those two being partners and moving on and. Um, you know, almost the case by case basis of right. Well, now we get a police procedural sort of style show. Maybe who knows what this film's going to be next? But it'll be these two at the center of it. However, even if you rush the schedule and release it like 1999 or maybe just 2000, no one's working with her, and she just literally effectively almost retires from acting. Now, again, we don't want to say why because we don't know, and some people's opinion isn't isn't here. There are Kevin Smith on like the DVD commentary, for example, for Dogma specifically said, "Hey, you should have gone with Ginny and Garofalo rather than Fiorentina in the first place," because he was like, "This was a." fucking nightmare to work on this film because of her even though when it comes out on the film you can't really tell because mm -hmm. it's just yeah. a good performance and we like the character um but it but it is a problem for us specifically so how much can we incorporate how much can we retcon and again you want to sort of keep the idea of the character alive but how do we fix that without just literally saying and here's a problem yeah. and it's it's worth noting in the kind of you know post me two times or whatever that being a quote unquote difficult woman is mm. often code in Hollywood for oh, something yeah. very different but of course we have no idea what the circumstances Entirely. of this are and the fact that it is coming from quite a diverse group of people suggests that maybe she is just a pain in the ass to work with it, mm. do it doesn't seem like she just got kind of blacklisted but then equally you know Dogma was a Weinstein company mm. production or a, Miram a Miramax probably at the time yeah. you know so who yeah, knows? who who knows? But we do know that she basically stopped acting yes. after this. So we've got a challenge there because I think that I think we all agree that we would quite like to bring that character definitely back, and at least not to eliminate her from the film with one throwaway line. Mm. Which again was this the problem of of Men in Black Two is just saying, oh, she just want to go back to the morgue. Yeah. It's like that's dumb. <laughs> but the other thing that we have to address there with that mm. is how we handle Tommy Lee Jones. Correct. Because... Carefully, delicately. And with <laughs> Oz Coffee. Because yeah. one of the big problems in terms of the retcon is also that they literally reset his character. Yes. Like, not not even, like, metaphorically, he's <laughs> inexplicably doing the things that he yeah. should have yeah. learned from in the first movie. It's like, no, we've literally got a reset switch so we can make him exactly what he was at the start mm. of the first film. Which, again, is such a slap in the face for both the audience, but also for the fact that this character is written with a really nice arc where in the first yeah. scene he neuralizes his, his old partner and he's 
doesn't want to get out of the whole scene, but he, he just he's just too tired for it and he can't carry on. And um, I think it was Patrick H. Williams who made a really good comparison of like, you know, wanting to live in New York City specifically. And like, sometimes you go, I can't, I can't live here anymore. It's too much goddamn effort. I'm too old. Um, and yeah, this film just literally just does, as you say, a hard reset and says, and look, look, he's back. Like nothing has changed except we spent a lot of this film trying to make it that way and it doesn't really fit. And his arc is basically the character arc in the first film. Like, yes. He's the, that's the important thing. Like that mm-hmm. is the most like driving factor in that yeah. in terms of the two main characters. So yeah, how are you guys going to get around that shit? Well, we need <laughs> we need to get to uh we need to be at a place where we're not falling back on those things. Yes. So the question, so the two questions are: Do we want to bring back Tommy Lee Jones? Firstly, mm. and then the second question is: If we want to do that, how do we do that? Mm. That's question number one. Mm. Question number two is: What are we gonna do with the character of L? Yes, which is Linda Fiorentino's character entirely. Is that character coming back? And if so, is it going to be her? And how are we going to get around that? Could could we cast her in that role if See, we wanted to? Yeah. Because I think we want to bring that character back. But it's that thing of how much are we able to bend? You know, we always have <laughs> a certain internal sequelizers <laughs> logic where we, we've we said, you know, you can't just cast someone if they're dead. Mm, yeah. Like I think about the John Belushi stuff when we were doing Blues Brothers oh, God, and that yeah, being yeah. a major obstacle of how we get around that. Yeah, yeah. This is different because it's that thing of that person isn't dead, but they essentially just stop working ostensibly because a number of people involved in the production of these films have said we can't work with this person anymore. So, see what we did with Too Fast Too Furious was we were saying Vin Diesel himself. Here is the evidence of him saying he had made a mistake. We could convince him to come back with the right script. This isn't that condition at all. This is this person cannot be in this film, but this character kind of has to be yeah. in this film so it depends really on how we fix it so I, in my opinion because we, we sort of went back and forth and this sort of behind the scenes how it works we um tend to have what one leading writer as well who comes with a we all pitch ideas and bits and pieces and one someone says all right i've written a synopsis and we'll sort of pitch in from there um and i was largely against the whole idea of k coming back so I thought, no, no, no. but i like what alec did which we'll cover later um it's like no that actually works much better than what was done in the film we got it is it's a more tasteful version it feels more in terms of into the into the character so bringing k back yeah tommy lee jones come back and come back in a, in a reasonable way we feel l has to be a recast and it has to be a semi-clever recast and it has to be something that is going to fit the film, fit the character without feeling like an imitation and or somebody... I mean, obviously, we, it's, it, being science fiction, you can do so much to say, oh, yeah, well, this happened. Or you just show a sort of scene of something or body double sort of stuff. You can do all kinds of stuff. It's just figuring out what is tasteful and works without being ham-fisted and forced. Her face got eaten by an alien and now she's got a different face <laughs> rebuilt. Or like, I don't know. I mean... <laughs> Or you can just not address it and just nah, go yeah, straight into it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you mean like a, a roadie situation in Iron Man? Yeah. yeah. Or yeah. Um, Clarice in uh, Hannibal. Yeah. 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 Um, there's actually an actress who we were bouncing around ideas for the villain. Um, and I uh, came up with a bunch of ideas that I'll, I'll mm. detail later. Um, and... One of the ideas that I believe Matt had mm. was Julia Louise Dreyfus, mm. and I think she'd actually work quite I well agree. as a as an L replacement. She's basically the same age, like same s- same sort of look, and she can do that kind of dry, like 
deadpan delivery. Mm. I think she would work well with Will Smith. And also, most importantly, because of the whole Seinfeld stuff, ingrained in the New York nature of everything. Mm. I think it feels part of the brickwork. Also, Seinfeld, I'm pretty sure Seinfeld had ended at that point. But even if it hadn't, it didn't matter because, you know, you could take comedy to do a film. Yeah. I think that would work rather well and be, I hate to say this, that would be a step up in my opinion. Especially considering how fucking funny she is in things like Veep. Mm. Yeah, recently. Julia Dreyfus is amazing. She's yeah. amazing. I, that would be, I think it's a good shout. Hmm. Yeah, I'd go with that. And that's how we fix that problem. <laughs> <laughs> So we've hinted at how we're going to fix those problems. I guess it's script time for you, Mr. Plowman. Yeah. So um, the interesting thing with Men in Black 2 is that while there are some specific problems that we've identified, the bare bones of the story isn't terrible. And I think that with the right treatment, you could... There are some changes, some core changes that you have to make. So we're wor- I'm working with what we've got here, essentially, but tweaking it to implement these changes that I think are going to make the movie a bit more of a Men in Black sequel. Mm. So, five years after the events of the original film, agents J and L are called to investigate the murder of an alien MIB agent, Ben, at a New York pizzeria. The waitress who witnessed the incident tells them that the murderers are the Selene, a hive mind of aliens with a wasp-like power structure led by Selena and have taken the form of human beings. She says that they were looking for something called the Light of Zartha and that before killing Ben, they unsuccessfully interrogated him for information. Elle neuralizes the waitress and they return to Men in Black headquarters. Reporting to Chief Zed... J and L are informed that the light of Zartha is nothing new to the MIB. In fact, J's former partner, Agent K, handled the case back in the 70s. And there's the tie back to K. Nice, nice. K, along with a handful of top agents, was entrusted to protect the immensely powerful light by the Zarthan queen, Lorana, lest it come into the possession of her nemesis, Selena. Ben, the alien murdered in the diner, was the last living agent aware of the light of Zarthan's location other than K. Zed tells J and L that they need to reach K before the Selene do. He says that K left instructions for the MIB in the event of the Light of Zarthan case reopening to retrieve some of his personal effects from an encoded location. Decoding K's instructions, J and L are led to a locker at Grand Central Station, which contains K's old video rental card, as well as a society of tiny aliens who worship the card as their deity, (laughs) repeating a seemingly nonsensical chant around it in apparent prayer. L takes the card, and they return to Men in Black headquarters. Frustrated by this apparent dead end, and with the clock ticking down, Zed makes a drastic decision. He says that while it goes against Men in Black policy, they'll need to deneuralize K to recover the information. Which is kind of the topic we touched on yeah. earlier. Yeah, yeah. J and L then travel to Churro, Massachusetts, where K is living as the town's postmaster, Kevin Brown. Upon meeting up with Kevin, J attempts to convince him that he's a former Men in Black agent by proving that his colleagues are aliens. But stony-faced Kevin has none of it. The discussion is halted, however, by the arrival of the Selene, who lay the post office to waste. J, L, and Kevin manage to escape, 
and Serlene reasoned that their next move will be to return to Men in Black headquarters. Under Serlene's leadership, the Serlene lay siege to the MIB building. In a tense conversation with Chief Zed, Serlene reveals that the seemingly altruistic Zarthans were actually intergalactic empire builders who secretly colonized the Serlene and stole the light of Zarthan, which is actually named the light of Serlene, from them. So basically, they're the British. <laughs> now we are the villains of history. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now, in retribution, Selena intends to use the light to destroy both the Zarthan and Earth, because by hiding the light, she believes Earth colluded with Zarthan. JL and Kevin arrive at the MIB headquarters. Can you stop putting emphasis on Kevin? <laughs> JL and Kevin. <laughs> guys, guys, we need to talk about Kevin. Hey! <laughs> Thank you for listening, everybody. <laughs> Good night. See you in a couple of weeks. JL and Kevin arrive at the MIB headquarters to find it taken over by the Selene. In the final act of the film, they have to sneak around Die Hard style oh. to get to the denuralizer. That was Tim's idea, Beth which I like. No very shoes, much. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Everybody just takes their <laughs> shoes off for no reason. This was Tim's suggestion. I was very keen on that. In the final act of the film, they have to sneak around Die Hard style to get to the denuralizer and restore Kay's memories. They do, and Kay, no longer Kevin, is revived. However, he then reveals that he neuralized himself after the original Light of Zarthan incident to protect the information from falling <laughs> into the wrong hands. At that moment, Jay and Kay are rumbled by Selina. Furious that the location of the Light of Zarthan remains unknown, she decides to destroy Men in Black headquarters in retaliation. But as she is about to wreak havoc, Elle realizes that Kay's video card is the Light of Zarthan. That's why the locker-dwelling aliens worshipped it as a god. She repeats the locker-dwelling alien's seeming nonsense incantation and activates the light and directs it at Selena. With Selena subdued and control restored, the Zarthan are brought to justice for their colonization of the Selene in intergalactic court. Because that's a thing, why not? Yeah. <laughs> Zed reveals that the MIB cannot re-neuralize Kay. He's been through the process so many times now that he'd be left permanently brain damaged. So he becomes the first MIB retiree with a full knowledge of the scum of the universe, which is great if we need to bring him back for another sequel. <laughs> nice. Okay. So there we go. So I think that the things that we were keen to address there is that I, it was important to bring in L and actually make her a presence. I didn't really elaborate in the script how we were going to do that, mm -hmm. but I feel that one thing that might be quite interesting there is if you had uh, Will Smith in this role of um, sort of coming to terms with his role now as being a fully-fledged MIB agent and feeling like he has to be the mentor that K was to him. The reluctant mentor so, kind of role, yeah, that makes yeah, sense. Yeah. But trying to be a bit more of a hard-ass than he is and it not coming naturally mm. to him. Um, and th this causes tension between the two. <clears throat> Meanwhile, we see that... Um, Elle is actually picking up on things that he isn't because he's in this mindset. So she's the one who's interested in the in the video card, for example, which he sees no relevance to and dismisses. And kind of learns, you know, Will Smith learns at the end of the film that he sort of has to be 
he has to be himself and he has to be willing to be more of a partner and to actually let somebody in, which kind of ties back into the thing we were talking about in the first film, which is he's kind of a loner. Mm. So he's not really had to deal with people and this idea that he then all of a sudden has to be a people person. Mm. So we get some, some or, or an alien person, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. you know, same difference. We're all, <laughs> we're all, we're all part of the same galaxy, right? We're um, all God's children in the dark. Yeah. So, um, I guess, sure. Uh, so, uh, um, quizzical looks around. Pastor Tim, yeah. once again. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Um, and then, of course, you've got how you address the Tommy Lee Jones situation. And I thought it would be much more fun if we just kept him as Kevin the Postmaster. That would be, mm. yeah. Rather than having to. We get this entirely different dynamic and we make him a bit of a bit player compared mm. to the other two. He's the third <coughs> part in this. They are the partnership and he is he is um kind of something. He's something. Joe Pesci yeah. in uh, uh Lethal, Lethal Weapon, Weapon 3. Three. Yeah. <laughs> um so he kind of plays that role. And I love the idea that Tommy Lee Jones' character is just so stubborn that mm. after not being a like like that he doesn't at all believe that aliens are a thing mm. and that you have this idea of his continued disbelief and justification of the situation is, and rationalization of it up to the point that it becomes entirely ridiculous. Mm. And then the final sort of big fix there is addressing the weak villain problem. Uh, I've tried to give Selena a bit more of an actual motivation for being a bad guy rather than just your kind of muhaha take over the galaxy yeah, nonsense, yeah. Mm-hmm. which is that let's give the bad guy a motivation and make them a bit more relatable and mm. create a stronger villain out of it. But essentially strapping that into the bare bones of the passable script that you've mm. had for Men in Black 2, I think you can get a slightly better film out of it. I think it's also worth noting that we have completely junked the very meager love story yes, that uh, yes. yeah, Will oh, Smith God. has in yeah. the film because they don't do like they give it not enough time to be even what like you've got Rosario Dawson who is a very charismatic actress like given basically nothing to do and aside from hang out with some worms and not fall asleep apparently because they will put themselves in her yeah of <laughs> so God. weird um yeah, they, they like they try and make it this big epic romance of like, oh, yeah. Will Smith is or Jay is lonely and like feels isolated, and there's this person comes along, but they there's not that much chemistry between them, mm. and also they don't give it any time to develop into a plot. Something that Roger Ebert said, and I think that another problem with this is that it puts Will Smith in the position of the straight man, mm. which is not within that dynamic kind of feels a bit weird, mm. which it was actually what then gave me the idea for let's put Will Smith in that role, but make it uncomfortable on him mm. and make it deliberately something that he's trying to do and not doing very well, mm. because then you can have some fun with it. Whereas the actual script genuinely tries to put him in that role mm. and ends up feeling mm. like it's forcing his character in a different direction. And I think there's definitely room that you can have like, L as a kind of straight woman, like the, the the film has established, she's got this very like dry sense of humor and slightly kind of oddball approach to life. And then you have him being a little bit more like bombastic, almost kind of trying to prove himself as this kind of veteran mentor figure um, and feeling like he needs to play up to that. I think that would work with Will Smith really well. I think well. you're going to get basically again, like a lot of these films where you describe a situation, scenario or scene and say to yourself, oh, this is 
this is good. It's just a bit, you know, it's vanilla. It's like, yeah, that's the point. You give them the backdrop that's very straightforward for them to bring a lot of themselves to it. And again, a riffing Will Smith coming to terms with, I should be more Will Smith, and a Julia Louis-Dreyfus being just constant. Again, sounds silly. Just height difference alone. <laughs> it's going to be really funny to watch on screen. And then in the background, Tommy Lee Jones in shorts with his hands in his pocket saying, I'm not touching anything. Yeah. It's, it's the kind of thing that... It, yeah. it, it, it's hard to describe that kind of comedy, but it's the thing that's yeah. like... If you have that kind of triple chemistry going on, that could be really, really good. Yeah, Tommy Lee Jones in the background being like, it's probably hallucinogens in the water. Mm. Yeah. Or something like yeah. that. Because like, if you said to someone, pitch men in black without him having seen them, I'm like, okay, Tommy Lee Jones, uh, the guy from The Fugitive? Hey, Pete Pan, right off the sit down. Yeah, that guy. And then the guy from Independence Day. Whoa. Jeff Goldblum? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those two. And to be fair, that would be also just as weird a yeah. pairing. But that's the point. And... Wasn't that going to be Chris O'Donnell at one point? Yeah. Yeah, Chris O'Donnell yep. turned it down because he thought it was Batman too Forever. similar to Robin yeah. as a role. <laughs> Idiot. And then did Vertical Limit. <laughs> sorry, O'Donnell. <laughs> okay. um, so yeah, it's, it is one Not of those sorry. things I think that sells itself when because it, it's the things we try to get across the audience. We describe a pitch or a casting call or something we've made. Obviously, there's a lot of thought that goes into it, but also it's hard to explain until you see it. And obviously, you ain't never gonna see it, so sorry. But yeah, I, th I think it's one of those things that could be genuinely really impressive, especially considering that Die Hard-esque situation where you sort of sneak around the base. It could be the fact that, you know, Julie Dreyfus playing by the books kind of thing knows the be the way better around, uh, you know, all the different mm. ins well, and outs of things. As Tim pointed out to me when we were mm. spitballing, spitballing mm. ideas for this the other day, that was a real missed opportunity, the whole they take over the Men in Black headquarters. Yep. Yep, they entirely. didn't do anything with that. And I think that there's a yeah, there's a more interesting story waiting to happen there if you could elaborate on that. Yep. Yeah, because Selena's takeover of the base takes about 45 seconds. Yeah. Yeah. And you have all these supposedly like the best of the best agents just made to look like chumps. Yeah. And... Yeah. Like, you have a base full of aliens and alien technology, and, like, how do you not make that an interesting sequence? And you yeah. have Barry Sonnenfeld directing it. Like, what the hell? <laughs> Which, again, is all of Men in Black International. <laughs> None of it. It's, it's like you have all the opportunity to do so many interesting creative things, and you're like, oh, that's what you did. Okay, yeah, great. Well done. Talking about things that we've we've chopped out a lot less of the repeated jokes because that is the other thing that really holds back Men in Black 2 is the fact that they just go back to the same well over and over. And I think Alec very wisely kept in the two bits that are actually pretty funny, which is the locker full of aliens and the uh, Tommy Lee Jones's co-workers all being aliens because you've got to keep Bismarcky in there beatboxing. Mm. Yeah, true. So that leaves the last thing to be fixed and the last sequelizer to fix it. Mr. Matum, over to you, sir. Yeah, I, I kind of wanted to delve more into the problem of the villain. We've mentioned that, like, Lara Flynn Boyle is not good in this film, but she also isn't given much to do. Um, the the kind of the Selena alien is not particularly inspired. Um, and we also have Johnny Knoxville as just a terrible comedy sidekick. Oh, God. Um, that's a weird thing about this film, just to interject quickly. Mm. Is that, yeah, because it's like, hey, Jackass is the thing. That's yeah, let's get why, this. Yeah. Let's get this trendy man mm. into bringing the kids. That's yep. his entire fucking career, isn't it? Just, yeah. uh, Jackass is the thing. It's, oh, they got a new Jackass film out. Put him in another movie. Fuck off. Should you just say Johnny right, Cash? <laughs> nah, maybe. 
I think you did. I think you just went, Johnny Cash is a thing. Put him in a new movie. I mean, and yeah. yeah. Imagine if Johnny Cash had been in this film. <laughs> Johnny Cash is the man in black. Why is he not oh, in this movie? Oh my movie? god! Really good How have we not done that before? It's because yeah. Michael Jackson was already oh, in it, god. ruining it with can his I, weirdness. Can I just make that a fix? Can we take out Jackson and put in Johnny Cash? Because yeah. yes. Cash isn't dead, so that makes sense. Yeah, I mean he is now, yeah. but he's not then. Yeah. No, yeah. at that time, yeah. yeah. He just went home. <laughs> was that? Uh, was that? I don't believe Elvis is dead. Like, no, I think they're like, all Cash dead. Is still alive. I think people who are alive are dead. <laughs> Speaking of which, I thought Rip Torn was dead, but now he is dead, so sorry. R.I.P. Rip. R.I.P. Torn. Speaking of the villain, this is partly sinking in. That fight sequence with Rip Torn bouncing around and just doing kicking in the air. Yes, was and they so did, stupid. And they they give Tommy Lee Jones a bit of it as well, and it's like the ball chinian. Yeah, what the fuck is going on there? It's. Dooku versus Yoda. It's oh, it is. Mad. Like oh, you forget old that people bouncing about. You forget that all that shit happened in 2002. They're like, it's computers. We can do anything. <laughs> we can make old people do flips. Yay! Dinosaur. Dino <laughs> DNA. <laughs> We've injected Ripton with Dino, Dino DNA. DNA. Uh, and he's he's just having a horrible time. He's grown scales and uh, reproduced I mean, the frog. He's fucking. <laughs> He's laying eggs. I'll clutch of them. But don't know what we're doing. Life with them. finds a way. Apparently, <laughs> kill me. <laughs> Ripton does move in hurts. Duck, dip, dive, dodge, and dino DNA. <laughs> yes. Oh, the sixties. <laughs> oh dear. Anyway, <laughs> so Tim, you were saying yes. Uh, so the original Men in Black had a lot going for it in terms of the villain. We've we've talked about. Vincent D'Onofrio's like amazing performance um and it also it it didn't kind of go for the standard let's just kind of stick a prosthetic forehead on a person and call them an alien that you would get in you know Star your Trek. Star Treks around that time um it, you know we had this idea of a giant cockroach squeezing himself into a, an Edgar suit which allowed you to have the villain for a long period of time be this you know using makeup and stuff and then you get a nice reveal at the end when he finally hatches out or unfurls or you know whatever you want to say mm. um uh so in in alex uh original screenplay we we kind of play up the um selena's kind of wasp like aliens but i i thought there was a more interesting way to kind of go with that and and kind of avoid repeating the the bug alien kind of archetype um and wanted to go for something quite high concept again and and this is another thing that Men in Black 2 is very inconsistent on because we see Ben, who is supposed to be a Zarth, Zarthan, Zarthian, killed quite near the beginning, and he appears to be some kind of like energy being. But then in all the flashbacks, we don't get any impression that the like, because the implication is that Tommy Lee Jones has banged one of these people. <laughs> And it's like, well, if they're just an, if they're just made of light, how did that happen? And like, how is flashlight? How is Rosario Dawson half? energy being like anyway yeah so we'll stick more we'll avoid those questions because we don't have rosario dawson in this and we don't have tommy lee jones sleeping with the alien queen or so let's we? stick <laughs> or do we let's so we stick that in there. the alien queen from alien because <laughs> <laughs> when you said that. oh no we do we do keep that in but we're okay, not good just not get not, away from <laughs> kevin you bitch <laughs> Just going. <laughs> just the veil veil. <laughs> I find that weird. Is Why that is Kevin salivating? <laughs> Why is she Queen laying an egg inside of me? <laughs> um, so we're going to stick with the idea of the, the Zarthians being like an energy being, which, as with most star, uh, sort of 
um, sci-fi they represent in the film by them being sort of made of light. Um, it's the brief glimpse that we see of Ben. So Does that makes sense. Yeah. Physics, right? Going. Physics, exactly. Don't so, watch Men in Black International. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I don't plan on doing it anyway, let alone now that I've heard you say that. Mm, the bad guys have a similar thing, but not well done. Mm. <sighs> um, and, it's, and it's a thing that we see in lots of science fiction of just these kind of beings made of light and stuff like that. And I thought a fun kind of counter to this would be having the Selene be uh, beings made of sound um, so that they arrive on Earth as kind of like a radio transmission and almost like take over the, the mind of the person who hears them. Um, so we get a kind of body snatcher style kind of people being possessed by these aliens, um, which allows them to kind of hide in public. You know, we can um, do some, uh, perhaps some like special effects on the eyes or something, but it allows us to keep the budget relatively low mm -hmm. uh, until you want to do something big and spectacular. Um, and it also, it, it presents a unique problem for the men in black, because if you've got host humans who are just being taken over, then you don't necessarily want to just blow them into smithereens. Um, and it, it means that there is, you know, you, you can have um, a, some interesting like Sonic style attacks when they attack the post office, for example. And, of course, when they take over the Men in Black building, you can have that kind of infiltration. Possessing the agents yes. and stuff. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Again, these guys have not seen Men in Black International. If you're thinking to yourself, I know this story. No, you don't. They don't know. <laughs> Carry on. That all happens. In, were we just writing international accidentally? A little bit. Okay, good. But yeah. they do it very badly and very inconsistently. It's mm. Spider-Man 3 all over again. <laughs> <laughs> um... And then, you know, we can have during the final battle, we can we can give some exposition of like, oh, well, they can exist outside of a host body for a little while. So then we can have Selena forced out of the, the human host body and you get a big CGI climax with a fun looking energy alien um, that, you know, eventually gets blown up using the light and then, you know, some smart. Matt's giggling at climax with an energy alien. And so the, the other thing this leads to talking about is the casting because we'd have various people being possessed uh, by the aliens and have, you know, Selena be the, the chief one. And I thought it would be interesting, especially as we're having this idea of like, oh, it's an older case from back in the 70s or whenever when, you know, Tommy Lee Jones was a younger agent and stuff like that to have the the kind of the, the main host be an actress of roughly his age and and kind of play up that angle um it gets us some more of that kind of generational conflict that we get in the first film and, and a little bit in this one as well um and most of the actresses who've come from that era have probably not ever got to play a villain so we get some fun kind of playing oh, interesting against i haven't even thought about that mm -hmm. angle to it yeah. um so i i bounced a lot of ideas around um some of the people on my list were uh, barbara streisand um jane fonda uh, or sissy spacek um who i thought could all be kind of interesting um, but the, the the one that I settled on was Sally Field. Interesting. Um, okay, yeah, yeah. Who uh, aren't May Mark two point oh? Uh, <laughs> of all the, the choices, of which one? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, I think at that time, the audience know her. Surely, just as Forrest Gump's mom. So yeah, yeah. Yeah. Fun, yeah. yeah. Fun side fact: um, I used to be on a pub quiz team called Sally Field of Dreams. I nice. Throw that out. There. <laughs> <laughs> um, she's someone who can do comedy and who can do 
more serious fare. Uh, she can sing because back, from back when she was the flying nun. In case we want to do something like with the audio abilities and have her. As that was by mm. Barbara Streisand. <laughs> that was also why Barbara Streisand was <laughs> I, in the I, mix. You see, you're talking about people who are of the same generation mm. and sing. There we go. Go on, throw it Sound out there. Sound from the seventies. Have you considered Carrie Fisher? Oh, I mean, oh, I, I thought you were going to make a Frampton joke. No, I'm not uh, making a bit of I, I thought it was going to be literally Pirates of the Caribbean all over again. And I thought you were going to say Stevie Nicks. Yeah, Stevie, Stevie Nicks still Peter Frampton. Frampton. Yeah. Stevie Nicks would also be Stevie a good Nicks choice, would to be, be fair. Yeah. <laughs> Carrie Fisher is another one Carrie who just Fisher. got that nice Star Wars like sci-fi yeah, throwback Carrie as well. Yeah, Carrie Fisher would no, actually be sing. a really... She's in the Star Wars Holiday Special. She sings <laughs> that song about... Yeah, that like, thing everyone can, likes she can, scene. She can she quote sings... unquote sing. Oops, upside your head. I mean, there <laughs> is... Not. You know, I mean, there's that note she infamously doesn't hit in that um, <laughs> in that thing. But, you know, she Carrie could Fish sing... Is, I mean, I, I like Sally Field. That was a good shout. Mm. Carrie Fisher's now torn me because of the whole alien link... Mm. Oh, well, the shit. the other reason I, I went with Sally Field is because uh, she and Tommy Lee Jones had actually starred together yes. mm. uh, in uh, Backroads uh, from 1981, and I quite like the idea of just you know that kind of slightly little meta angle of you mm. know let's bring them together, except have them. Nice reuniting cast I'll, yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you why I'm throwing Fisher into the mm. mix, and I think it's a, hash, you have a hard on hashtag for justice for Carrie. Yeah, uh, but I feel like um, like Sally Field is recognized for being great. Mm. Carrie Fisher was great, not just for Star Wars, yeah. but as a script doctor and as, you know, in other roles that she played in her own writing, mm. et cetera, et cetera. I would love to give her a <laughs> bit of a bit of glory, a bit of a a bit of a research. Actually, I, I'm going to reword Jesus. that. I would love to give her a bit. Because <laughs> <laughs> at that time she was in probably... Um, well, she'd have done Austin Powers cameo stuff. She'd have done she, when Harry met Sally. She was in that, wasn't she? Yeah. Well, yeah, she does a, a she does a, a bunch of cameo stuff because yeah. Postcards from the Edge comes out in the late eighties, which mm. gives her a kind of career boost, and yeah. then she shows up mm. in some things. But yeah, I just I'm going to leave it entirely up to you. I, I mean, I, you shouts, you but. you have thrown me because Carrie Fisher is such a great shout. So throw it to Jack. Get it yeah, yeah, Jack. Yeah, as our, our adjudicator, producer and, man. Considering you just said Carrie Fisher, it's occurred to me I've not seen her in anything that isn't a cameo that isn't Star Wars. Like I've not seen her in a starring role in anything else mm. since 1983. Blues Brothers. She wasn't starring. She was still a cameo. Yeah, oh, yeah. Still, still a cameo. cameo. Yeah, yeah. She pops up occasionally and stuff. So yeah, I quite like the idea of giving giving her giving her a bit of a shout out. That's a bit mm. a bit interesting twist. I wasn't like I said. I was expecting Stevie Nicks or. <coughs> Peter Bloody Frampton. So, <laughs> right, 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 guys. Right, um, sound of the seventies. Peter Frampton in drag. That's that's the joke <laughs> I was expecting. And you're like, voice of <laughs> voice of Peter Frampton, body double Stevie Nicks. <laughs> yeah, I think that's, that's an interesting mm, twist. Mm. I like it. I like it. Given somebody who, like you said, has kind of gone underappreciated in many ways in Hollywood, and then yeah, giving a bit of a shout out, providing. That all the jokes around Carrie Fisher's character are not are, Star Wars. Yeah, are yeah. cleverly yes. written. Yeah. And aren't literally the. Well, you guys are writing it, so you'd be fine. <laughs> mm, would we? Mm. <laughs> we likes us some Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> we make some stupid references. You're pretty short. Oh, or, uh, <laughs> Julia Louis Dreyfus for a for being human? made of light. <laughs> why does why did the Celine why why is there this one random scene where we've glued Danish pastries to her? Head? <laughs> if if my memory is serving me, it would also mean that uh, she would not be the only former 
a Star Wars member having a weird uh, role in a 2002 film because I believe that is when Jay and Silent Bob oh, Strike the, Back oh, come oh, out. Oh, the cock knocker. And we have yeah. Mark Hamill yeah. as the cock knocker. <laughs> That's the that real best film of 2002. Carrie Fisher's the nun in that, isn't she? Yeah, she is. Yes, yeah. Another cameo role. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Mm. She's a cameo in fucking everything, but... Yeah, yeah. so yeah, a Carrie Fisher villain. Yeah, that's interesting. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So we fixed Men in Black Two, and if you have opinions about Men in Black Two, dear dear listeners of ours, you can contact us on the various social medias, sequelizers on basically everything: Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all the usual good stuff. If you have longer complaints, questions, anything like that, sequelizers at gmail dot com is the place to send it to for specific complaints against you, Mister Stogs. How can they contact you on the interwebs? I mean, the same thing would be to say, don't leave me alone. <laughs> I don't want your complaints. Let's all be nice to each other. But it's linked in the description with fuck the likes that. I'll take it all like a CGI climax. Uh, yeah, no, you can contact me on uh, Twitter, is probably a good place. Quibi. Quibi, <laughs> apparently. I'm there already. Um, yeah, Instagram, that kind of stuff with Stogs, S-T-O-G-H-Z. If you want to read my reviews, including the Men in Black International Review, it's at the redrighthand.co.uk. If you want to see the films I make, things you can search Cheese Mint, and we're all about doing some cool stuff. Um, that's probably everything you can do to find me. I also have an email address. You don't need that shit. You can fuck off. I don't want your emails. <laughs> Tim, it? how about you? Um... Yeah, Twitter, uh, I am trivia underscore lad. Um, and uh, I put a bunch of uh, blogging stuff up at uh, Tim Plus Alex uh, with my friend Alex Spencer. And uh, yeah, you can find me on Tinder if you're nearby. Oh. Um, Wait, is it a proximity? Bumble? Yeah, it's, it's, you it's, can set proximities, yeah. yeah. Okay. Plowman, how about you? Yo, sup? So I am. Um... Alec underscore Plowman. <laughs> Coming out of the hood. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, I'm Alec underscore Plowman on Twitter. I will eventually respond to the backlog of messages that I haven't checked yet. As I've already established, I'm not really a social media person, but I will do my best, lovely listeners, when I get a chance to respond to your various queries about my CGI climaxes and Peter Frampton. <laughs> um, I am uh, alecplowman.com is my website where you can find out a bit more about me and the sort of things that I'm involved with. And uh, when I am not sequelizing, I make heavy goddamn metal music with my man Jack Chambers. Yeah. Our band is called Monster City. We kick the Woo. living shit out of everything. And you can check out <laughs> our music at www.monstercityband.com. We're actually in the process of recording uh, an album at the moment, Yay. which is pretty cool. That's starting to sound pretty sweet, so be on the lookout for that stuff. That's going to be dropping soon. Dear listeners, I think it's worth noting that when Alex said heavy metal music, then uh, Jack did flash the devil horns just, just up, through the just horns as, a, up. Yeah, as yeah. like a reflex action. I, just in case. I should point out that my hand is perpetually flashing <laughs> the devil horns. Like, um, yeah. that's just its default position. Yeah, but that's because you're really Spider-Man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That and, um, it's actually the thwipping. That and, that and tendonitis, yeah. <laughs> Whipping and tendonitis, the yeah. Alec Plowman story. <laughs> the Alec Plowman method. <laughs> oh. <laughs> For a CGI climax. <laughs> Speaking of devil horns and thwipping, I'm JLW Chambers on basically everything. I talk about metal and comics and films, video games, all that good, hearty, wholesome family fun. I thought you were going to say all that good hardcore. <laughs> <laughs> I occasionally talk about hardcore. I like a bit of hardcore. Oh. No. 
Pornography. <laughs> Music. Okay. Okay. Uh, <laughs> JLW Chambers on everything. The usual stuff. Follow me if you like wrestling, video games, or comics. They're mostly things I talk about on those things. Unlike Alec, I'm on basically every form of social media you can think of. I think I've just signed up for Quibi, whatever that yeah. is. Can I, um, <laughs> can I say, if you do want to get a message to me, your best bet is to send it to Jack and then he will tell me. And then when I see him in person, I'll go, hey yeah. man, look at this, I printed this out for you. But yeah. like, oh, lovely. I will write I, I will write you a handwritten response and then Jack will get your address and post just a, it to just, just before we go, put it into perspective. When I was editing earlier seasons of sequelizers, Alec would literally have to physically hand me a disc <laughs> with with the episode, the original stems should, and stuff. I should all point that, like, out that that was entirely down to my terrible internet connection at the time, uh-huh. not mm-hmm. down to my technical. The fact that you're a dad, <laughs> yeah, it's just the I daddiest mean, dad who ever dad. I mean, I do, you know, I did, I did spend significant money on a CD player like recently, but you know. <laughs> You can you can also contact Alec Plowman by attaching your message to a pigeon <laughs> like, and <laughs> sending it to me. Yeah. I would like to say I really wish we had a PO box because if people wrote to us, I could like physically write them back, and that's much more appropriate. I think for we me can set one up, stuff. right? Probably. Yeah. Um, Alex calligraphy we'll do Let's is do that. gorgeous. Then people can actually write me letters, and I will. No, finally... they'll just send you pigeons now and expect you to bite the head off of it or something like that. Good lord. Well, thank you very much for listening, everybody. I'm going to get a bit Bob Geldof on you before oh, we go. Oh, God. Are you going to clap you and make African like children like die? Moi toy, <laughs> moi toy request that you give your fucking money. That's, that's um, Bono. Yeah, well, it's the same difference, isn't it? Same it person, is, it essentially. Um, but no, uh, yeah, cheers massively to everybody who's uh, thrown us some dollar on Patreon. It does make a big difference to us being able to keep doing this show we're a bit overwhelmed by how awesome you guys have been. We've got some cool stretch goals up there. We're hoping to be able to do more with We've the already show. Hit, already hit a few of them. We've hit and, a few of yeah. them. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're hoping we're, to hit we're some We're working more of them. on the merchandise, people. Yeah, we I got, know you're salivating, but we're working on it. We we're going to get some bibs for you. It's fine. Yeah, we got some <laughs> fine. <laughs> just bibs. They're cheaper than uh, T-shirts. Now, let me just throw this at you, okay, guys? Because someone bought it for me as a ridiculous present once. A bib. Have you ever seen a cock bib? <laughs> 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 no, but I want to see one with our logo on it. Yeah. It's basically all our faces. You put your dick through so you don't like <laughs> splash piss all over yourself. Oh, oh, I thought what? it caught the jizz. Yeah. So you don't splash piss all over yourself. It was a novelty Is your urinal like at cock level? <laughs> Are you touching the surface of the. Are you touching the porcelain with Show your Show us how mat? you go to the toilet, Matthew. <laughs> Coming soon. Sequelizer's cock bill. Well, I sit down and my penis is smudged entirely in water. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully not your own. Like, just... So yeah, thank you so much for all of the uh, money you've been throwing at us so far. It does help us to do the show. We're very grateful. Uh, that is patreon.com slash sequelizers. Check out our perks and rewards. And if you want to pledge bit of money that would be awesome because then we can keep doing this which we love to do so cheers thanks guys and for us considering doing it there is a lot of content on there now a lot of uh, extra bits and pieces so you'll get access instantaneously to some cool stuff outtakes mm-hmm. show notes all the bonus stuff you gotta look forward to yeah we it, got some we got some fun ideas coming up as well we're oh, going to be doing yeah. some new some different content ideas and things thank you for listening everybody we'll see you very soon when we continue season four of sequelizer. <sighs> Keep thinking about those fucking aliens and men in black. <laughs>
Is it the Bulchidian? It's the Bulchidian every fucking time. What is that? Because is that the same race that Hugh Jackman is in movie 43? It's so frustrating that it is just like, that's a, we've run out of ideas. That's yeah. just... And is it, is it that he is called a Bulchidian? Or is that what Will Smith happens to call him and therefore is being no, racist? No, that's his. that's the, the name of the alien species.